This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. Today's podcast episode is a GHIL lecture by Janaki Nair entitled The Classroom as Sensorium, Tactility, Attention and Perception in the Mysore School, 1860-1930. to Janaki Nair taught modern history at the Center for Historical Studies at JNU, New Delhi, and since retirement has also taught at Azim Premji University, Bengaluru. How is the hand to be guided, the eye to be trained, the senses sharpened in preparing the child for an adult world? In princely Mysore in southern India, the missionaries who took the initial steps in opening up education to wider circles than those entitled to forms of knowledge and the government efforts that followed were faced with new and complex challenges in a society wrecked by the prescriptions of caste and gender. On the one hand, the classroom presented opportunities for ordering space and time, and for remaking bodies and habits in the process of building new skills. But the classroom and the boarding school were perforce also sites of unlearning, of breaking down habits and prejudices relating to touch, sight, as well as older skills and styles of learning, in order to enable the modern educated subject to emerge. A small but suggestive body of visual and other records allows for speculation about the experience of schooling in late 19th and early 20th century Mysore. Let me just go straight into this, explain that I have been told that there may be people in the audience who may not be familiar with India, and uh, so I've sort of pitched the talk at, at a level that I should be accessible, even if you do not have any deep knowledge of Indian history. But I am speaking about a very specific location, and so I'll just show you the map here on the right, of course, is the map of colonial India. I wrote this paper for a workshop on childhood and gender. And as I said, I'm not taking for granted that you might know this region that I am going to speak about. The region is not that important, except for one or two reasons, but it is in the south of India. So on the right-hand side, you see the map of colonial India. And on the left-hand side, the yellow state is Mysore. So here I'm sort of using my cursor to show you that. So I will read and hopefully the slides will move along with me. So a decade after the Judicial Commissioner of Mysore, A.B. Devereux, attempted in 1856 to set out a general scheme of education for Mysore, it was clear that educational theory of the kind that filled the pages of this very interesting journal which was coming out in Dharwad called Mathapatrike would come to grief in a classroom divided by gender, class, caste, language, and not least, religion. To which child, for example, would the five stages of learning so carefully calibrated for the prospective teacher apply when there was no universal experience of either childhood, which was composed of Shishu, the first four years, Balya, Balya, the first up to seven years, Kumara, seven to 10 years, teenage, for which the term Pyoganda was used, 
or young adulthood, Tarunya, from 14 to 18? Which child at the Shishu, Balya, Kumara stages would be uniquely enabled by the teacher to absorb the world through her senses rather than through the textual medium of grammar, law and astrology as the teacher was advised? Which child could be introduced to material objects, say clocks, that would guide her to the abstractions of time? So these were all the goals of the theory that were being laid out in this journal for teachers. But the question that I'm starting with is, was there such a well-defined gradation of childhood that would correspond to these steps that were being laid out? And how did children actually participate in and make meaning of the emerging object worlds of the classroom and sort of taking us into a realm that I feel is an important one that has not been investigated in the histories of education and that has to do with what was the transformation enabled by the introduction of various kinds of material and other objects and styles of learning that were introduced in into the Indian classroom. What alternative understandings of childhood itself does the history of schooling yield up even from so what you see in the reports of the department of public instruction is of course the narrative of failure they lament the leaking roofs the recalcitrant teachers the unavailable textbooks ill-prepared students an obsession with government employment rather than with real knowledge clearly there are other kinds of questions that the uneven richness of this 19th and 20th century allows us to ask Schooling as a dominant experience of childhood for those who passed through the system was formative in ways that have not yet been fully investigated. So I'm suggesting that the classroom, and we know now from works of people who have looked at the construction of schoolhouse itself, engaging and becoming, as it were, an object of pride in many locations, was experienced as a new sensorium. And given the rather compulsory physical material aspects of colonial schooling, the nurturing of specific skills of reading, writing, numeracy, or indeed mastery of new subjects such as history and geography were affected by new disciplinary practices, conditions of tactility and proximity, and the privileging of dress and comportment. How did the introduction of new aesthetic qualities, the new demand for attention and for the cultivation of character through an engagement with physical manual skills shape childhood? And when were these transformations tied more strictly to age? These questions require us to go beyond the depiction of education as failure or as socialization that only affirms and renews existing patriarchal colonial or capitalist structures. And it also moves us away from the well-known nationalist tropes of mothers, children being mobilized in the larger project of modernizing the family. Now I have to start and in a way protect myself here by saying this is a very speculative exercise that I'm going to engage in because, uh, and it calls for certain kinds of interpretive skills because we are working with very, very few and limited materials in terms of investigating kinds of questions that I have set out. I focus on three sometimes overlapping moments in the discourse on schooling in the Mysore, Karnataka region between the 1840s and the 1930s. And on those molecular 
transactions, interactions that were envisaged, enabled and materialized in the classroom. So I begin with the work of missionaries in education and the kinds of efforts that they put in to developing fine and gross motor skills with great and enduring success and new forms of tactility in learning, particularly for girls. Now, this missionary curricular innovation determined the form and content of subsequent government educational effort. But the second moment that I refer to in this talk is to the contributions of B.L. Rice, who decisively shaped the more literary aspects of the curriculum, while also encouraging new forms of cartographic perception and apperception. My third moment references something that, and here the uniqueness of Mysore comes in, something that was not experimented with in any other part of colonial India, an innovative and passionate espousal by H.J. Bahaba of the Sloyd system in 1907-1920 period, where his effort was to breach the, the barrier between mental and manual in female and male childhood or young adulthood. So those are the three moments that I'm going to discuss. And my interest in this very dense transformative point that the colonial classroom had become is because of modern education's very close link to the production of the punctual, conscientious, docile child to suit certain kinds of industrial needs. And we know that well from other examples. But in Mysore, where modern industry was yet to be, the physical material aspects of education certainly brought some kinds of disciplinary subjects into being. But can we read the physical materiality of the school and its new sensibilities and moralities that it generated for what they tell us about childhood and how it was created and shaped? So let me begin with the missionaries and what the missionaries both learned and unlearned and what Therefore, the students were also learning and unlearning in their classrooms. They were the earliest to bring in educational work in Mysore and in the Kannada region from the early 19th century. They entered a landscape which was dotted with certain kinds of indigenous schools, which were of various sizes and qualities. And the London Missionary Society first began in about 1810 and were in Bangalore, which is one of the cities of Mysore state, uh, since 1817. Did I say 1910? I meant 1810. Uh, in 1840, two missionary wives, Mrs. Sewell and Mrs. Rice, began the first school exclusively for girls in Bangalore. And by 1842, two new boarding houses for girls and boys had been set up. In addition to the London Missionary Society were the Wesleyans, who began their Mysore work in 1821, and the first school was set up in 1826. In contrast to this, where the government Hindu girls' schools, which began their work only in the 1860s. So you can see that the missionaries are actually going to be quite important in the uh, kinds of educational experiments that are being conducted. So the report of 1867 noted that females were forced to remain well below their age-appropriate attainments, their school career being cruelly abbreviated by 
I'm sorry, uh, I, I should say one or two words about this, which, which should have come a little earlier when I was talking about the relatively few materials that we have to talk about what changes within the classroom. And this is actually a rare instance of a description of early missionary education, in which somebody is describing the kind of transitions that he made from plain black painted wooden boards to paper made out of leaves and uh, then on to, you know, uh, later or much later on to books and paper and pencils. So it was noted quite early on, as you can see from 1867, that females were forced to remain well below their age-appropriate attainments and their school careers were being cruelly abbreviated by marriage. To read with the female schools, it was said, are at present something like infant school. To read with facility is almost the utmost we can expect from girls who, with many temptations to their education, are removed from the school by the time they are 12 years old. But meanwhile, before the little woman was plucked from the class for marriage, what were the other lessons also being learned? Important among these lessons was the missionary insistence on mixing of both castes and genders within the classroom. In a society which was entrenched in a finely graded and fanatically adhered to prohibition of touch, this mixing was a revolutionary first step. Takali Chandrasekhar, very few people in India are working on the history of touch. Takali Chandrasekhar is one such person who says that the touch of the missionaries provided comfort, empowerment, acknowledgement, affirmation of humanity to Dalits. And at the time, in the 1870s, an Indian convert, Reverend Henry Premaka, who served the Wesleyan Methodist Missionary Society from 1886, recounts the surprise that he experienced on seeing the white missionary wife, Mrs. Reddit, bathing a group of famine children in 1877. The missionary determination to abolish physical distancing in the classroom, however partially or incompletely realized, got school students to sit together, even eat together, such achievements being celebrated, not just in the detailed notes made by the missionaries, but in photographs, and finally immortalized in, uh, as, as a very enduring achievement of the missionaries in the more widely circulated postcard as well. Missionary writings and photographs emphasize the importance of mingling with the students, not just during school hours, but at mealtimes. Children, meanwhile, display all the habits that have been learned in boarding school, cleanliness, neatness, order in demeanor and clothing, and indeed a certain docility. In fact, so closely does the missionary teacher mingle with the students that she is barely visible amidst the jostle of students to be closer. Claims of missionary success in mixing must, of course, be qualified by the early evictions from the missionary classrooms that had already taken place. Recounting, so, so this picture is, of course, showing you a slight distinction between Indian teachers and their attitude to the classes they were teaching. You can see they're standing quite apart. And unlike the missionaries, for instance, but the claims of missionary success must be qualified by the early evictions from the missionary classrooms that had already taken place. Recounting her experience of setting up the girls' school in Mysore in 1861, Mrs. Hutchins said, many left the school due to rumors spread by the Pune. A few pretty girls, however, 
refused to leave us and they were learning so much more rapidly than our first full pareya scholars but a bitter disappointment was in store for us a native gentleman who had become much attached to my husband came to him and asked if we knew that most of our nice sprightly pupils were being educated for dancing girls Hachin had no option but to close the school since she realized that these hapless ones are only taught to read that they might become proficient in learning the abominable and immoral songs contained in their own books. The expulsion of the Devdasi's daughter from the missionary classroom disturbed the twin narratives of the attempt on the one hand to obliterate the debilitating hierarchies of caste and on the other to extend the education of girl children the deliberate exclusion of those who were well equipped and indeed were 11 of sorts in the colonial classroom this was constantly repeated that these girls are actually very useful within the classroom because they are already literate they are very well educated they are bright they are able to learn was matched by the pride taken in those who replaced them the place of devdasi child in the classroom repeatedly surfaced in uh, governmental discussions even in the late 1870s well into actually the 20th century when their admission was discussed nevertheless as late as the 1930s missionary schools uh, their commitments to habits of personal cleanliness and a sense of beauty for scope given to training for life in ways not included in the school curriculum by games and hobbies for a room set apart for prayer and quiet etc all this was officially acknowledged as very significant by this time there was also greater correlation between age and dress as the little women began to be distinguished from older girls by their dress and by their physical activity the tunic uniform transformed the little girls who were no more than miniature adults bundled in sarees from older girls who wore the saree so this is of course a picture of this pre reformed moment when very small children are dressed in sarees to another moment when the school is actually distinguishing between age groups uh, right here but um if i can come to one of the most lasting achievements of the missionary classroom nothing symbolized this in as enduring a way as the missionary influence on girls education and the introduction of needlework and sewing to the curriculum now here i have to say immediately that india has a very large sophisticated culture of embroidery in different parts of the country but this is not what was produced in the colonial classroom what was introduced was an example of sewing and distinguished needlework as it were distinguished from embroidery and it was there was no male skill or accomplishment of equivalent value that established itself as an integral part of the curriculum well into the 20th century now feminist scholars have of course long established that sewing inculcated a particular idea of femininity docility and obedience head bent eyes lowered girls had perforce to sit still to develop patience and persistence to concentrate on the sewing task at hand but needlework's curricular career in the colonies was slightly different developing fine motor skills among girls along with the capacity for earning it was a way of being absorbed physically and mentally in one activity enhancing attention 
It enjoined silence and individuation, no doubt, but it also imbued young girls with a sense of achievement and equipped them with new aesthetic sensibilities. Wielding the needle was as important as learning the alphabet or knowing numbers. With few exceptions, and I quote, the girls when they first came were utterly unrestrained, said the Belgaum Missionary Report of 1872. They knew not a letter, not even the way to hold a needle. They were quite strangers to school discipline and not a little time and patience were required to get them into working order. So I'm suggesting that by the 1870s, needlework and sewing, which constituted a very good part of the day in schools, were divided on the basis of class, caste, and not least language of instruction, but they were all united by their timetables. And there were hierarchies here too, which were borrowed from, in part, from 18th century English distinctions between needlework and ornamental sewing among schools of the higher kind and sewing with sewing referring to work by the poor in charity schools. Two or three hours of a five-hour day in girls' schools were spent on enhancing needlework skills. Its complete absence from the male curriculum made needlework and sewing crucial signifiers of sexual difference. But the interesting thing that is also happening at this time was the great attention paid to the incorporation of needlework into this curriculum was it a way of emphasizing that education would not come in the way of marriage, but only enhance its prospects? In India, needlework was well appreciated by a wide range of patriarchal authorities, missionaries, colonial administrators, Hindu, Muslim, and Christian leaders, as well as women themselves. Did needlework and the bodily disciplines and character that it produced also form the perfect alibi for women's education in the public sphere, successfully staving off fears that the teaching of reading might produce insubordination or worse, independence. So needlework is actually becoming this reassuring element in the colonial classroom. By the latter part of the 19th century, needlework could even constitute the sum total of girls' education. At the upper caste school in Bangalore, also it was reported that the children were removed too early allowing them to pick up only some skills of practical value, such as cutting and stitching. Now, unlike uh, Rosika Parker's excellent work, The Subversive Stitch, we do not have access to ways in which those who were trained in the skill were expressing their discontent or their, their you know, subversion, as it were. But the inspector's reports did explore this full range of capabilities that were enabled by needlework. And as Malati Devalvis has pointed out, it was part of a multi-dimensional technology of power. A knowledge of sewing was also the linchpin for the development of abstract thought while presaging the production of clothing and concomitantly neatness and decorum. Needlework in the curriculum did not sequester the woman indoors, but brought her out to be among her peers, a social and skill-forming activity. So that's the part that deals with needlework. But there is no doubt that sewing, knitting, and crochet were seen as suitable alternatives to the cultures of reading, even in the missionary boarding school. The missionaries also recognized over time the twin necessity of discipline, not only sensory organs such as the eye and the ear, but also the tongue 
in the case of women while also loosening it. So there was this contradiction that, for instance, somebody called Butler wrote about, Indian girls are on the whole more amenable to discipline than English girls. The tongue is the most unruly member and most of our troubles come from that source. Their spare time is all too largely occupied with tongue wagging. But there was also an equal kind of attention paid to the fact that these girls should shed inhibitions, should be encouraged to come out and to participate in the world. And, and this beautiful phrase which Butler has in her 1919 report where she says, to be in the world and yet not of it is hard indeed to the aspiring young woman with gates of opportunity opening on all sides of her. And in this context, I want to raise the very important sort of influence that the missionary school had. Of course, refining you know, uh, femininity through the kinds of fine motor skills encouraged by needlework, but it was matched in equal part by drill and games. The more active sports and games were, of course, intended for boys. Girls were still confined to drill and exercise. But for this, the playground was seen as an essential attachment to the school. Once more, it was the missionaries who recognized the importance of play, not just in assuring good health, but in building character, as in the case of boys, and in the case of boys, manliness. The government also echoed these sentiments, though ambitious plans were usually constrained by lack of resources. So I'm showing you here a very large playground attached to the mission school in Bangalore, but neither the academic nor the physical education curricula were gender neutral, as there was very great care taken to distinguish between girls and boys' capabilities here to suggest that while no difference may be observed for academic subjects, such as arithmetic, language, history, and geography, sewing, weaving, and skipping for girls should take the place of carpentry, gardening, and football for boys in keeping with their physical condition and for their future occupations. But physical education for both girls and boys endured even after the focus was increasingly driven by more literary concerns. So I'm going to spend a few moments here moving to, I'm moving now away from the kinds of efforts that were made to introduce games and drill in the missionary schools to the more literary aspects of the curriculum in which this figure called Neil Rice was very interested. Now, Philip Arias directly ties the lengthening of a short childhood of five to six years and the emergence of the age of adolescence to the growth of institutions, specifically the school, in his discussion of France. Such a firm correlation between age and school standard was not attained in Mysore until well into the 20th century. Divisions according to social class rather than age were more important. So for instance, right up until the 1920s and 30s, you have reports which are saying that we have to distinguish between the regular primary schools for upper castes, to which pupils between the ages of 5 and 11 would go, and those schools, the 20 Adi Dravida and Adi Karnaka primary schools, where children are comparatively old. So there will be accommodation made for varying abilities which are determined by caste. While the former would have their powers of observation developed by nature study and their hand and eye trained by means of drawing, 
kindergarten occupations, clay modeling, and other items of handwork, the school for the lower castes would plunge straight into practical instruction classes in weaving, mat making, leather work, and smithy. However, as these reports would conclude, such a division of labor in these classrooms was a failure since the latter children, that is the children who were taught these new skills, suffered in their general education due to the time dedicated to the practical instructions without the means to take advantage of technical skills that were being imparted to them. So what one sees in Mysore in about the 1870s is a state-led systematization of learning that began with the work of B.L. Rice. His interest was, however, much more in the literary aspects of learning, and he constantly began his reports with a certain degree of impatience with the faults of the indigenous styles of learning that he had to somehow rectify. The instructions in these schools, he said, did not aim at anything beyond the elements of reading, writing, and arithmetic, and generally resulted in a marvelous cultivation of the memory. And reading was from palm leaf manuscripts, and students eventually progressed to katakas or blackened boards, writing with pot stone. How was the government school to set itself apart from the indigenous school? The missionary timetable had already reoriented the school day and a sense of time. The government schools also had to reorient the month away from days which were considered inauspicious for learning to a more secular monthly schedule. We may note here that Rice acknowledged at the outset not age as the register of distinction between levels of education, but the materials used for writing. Indigenous schools, he said, lack method. The principal division is between those who use sand, board, or paper. And you can see here these two wonderful illustrations of indigenous Mysore education, which of course emphasizes disorderliness, the relatively scanty teaching aids, and of course the harsh punishments. The new government school began by building a proper schoolhouse, as the missionaries had done, while equipping it with benches, boards, and books, of course. In this place, the textbook loomed large, even dominated the space of the classroom, becoming, in the words of Krishna Kumar, the sacred icon of required knowledge. Textbooks clearly indicated levels of cognition, capabilities, and desirable skills. Rice would exert considerable energy in systematizing learning by the book, taking schooling in the more literary direction. But the printed word also allowed for privatized silent reading and cultivated greater attention on the part of the student. Could a new disciplinary regime of attentiveness be produced in a setting of colonial modernity in which the industrial only had a tenuous hold? What were the forms of this fundamentally new object in the modernization of subjectivity? The field of education was of course one such realm in which mnemonic practices had to give way or at least yield space to forms of reading, comprehension, and understanding in an individuated, immobilized sense, distinct from what previous educational practices had privileged. And this is Rice's description of the native school, which he says is sure to be a noisy one, all the boys being encouraged to repeat their lesson as loud as possible, a practice doubtless intended to contract 
restlessness, which is produced by enforcing silence. And then he gives this elaborate description of the Muslimani schools, in which he says the left knee is brought up under the chin, the arm put around the doubled up leg to reach the book. And in this attitude, the whole of the piece of pupils rock to and fro, using the forefinger of the right hand as a pointer, etc. So um, here he said, how is one to improve the attention of each student in a crowded classroom, consisting often of an assortment of ages and taught by a single teacher. We may only deduce from the voluminous reports on education what the effects of such new disciplinary regimes might have been. Silent reading, which in the view of educational experts enhanced not only attention but also comprehension, was encouraged. Comparing the government schools to the private-aided ones, Rice noted the specious industry of children who are bawling out at all hours of the day while our schools perform their work silently. And we have excellent work by, for instance, people like A.R. Venkatachalapati, who have demonstrated to us the reasons why the chanting of reading was a very necessary element of the pre-colonial reading practices. But the material changes in the classroom were a matter of pride, a sign of improvement, even if their educational agenda was severely hampered by governmental parsimony. Submitted, and this is something quite interesting because to this 1870 exhibition, which was held here in London, there was a large sort of component that was sent from Mysore to present a visual comparison of the past and the present. Indigenous schools fell far short of the plenitude of the colonial classroom. This was so the exhibits actually encouraged this comparison, contrasting the built form of the new school to the veranda or the temple space for the indigenous school, sand, cloth books, palm leaf in indigenous schools, printed paper, the new schools, etc. So all this was visualized for the purpose of demonstrating the achievements of colonial education. And also, of course, establishing the new disciplinary regimes, which included regular examinations. But there was another aspect to which Rice paid a good deal of attention, and that was the introduction of a completely new subject, and that was geography. In addition to his obvious interest in classical Kannada literature, Rice's missionary heritage manifested itself in a new form of evangelism, promoting with zeal the study of geography in schools, for which three new objects, the atlas, the globe, and the map, were essential aids. Once more, encouraging tactility in classroom learning, Rice enthusiastically participated in what Sumati Ramaswamy has felicitously termed cartographic evangelism, demonstrating the disproportionate role played by Protestant missionaries in propagating and establishing the new empire of geography. The subject of geography, Rice noted, is probably one, so I'm showing you a page of Pooh Vivarani, which I got right here in the British Library, one of the earliest geography textbooks. I'm just going to run through a few pages of them. You can read that on your own. I'm not going to talk so much about it. I'm reading to you what Rice said. Geography is probably the one that provokes most discussion. The irregular colored patches on the map representing countries are remarked upon. The branching lines indicating rivers and mountains are considered more to resemble trees or insects. The rotundity of the earth is revolution on its axis around the sun. These doctrines are never brought forward without giving rise to numerous dissentient opinions. 
equipping the classroom with wall maps and atlases and sometimes the globe was critical to developing the geographical imagination, reorienting perspectives to the God's eye view of the world or the country. While a cartographic representation of the world was on the surface gender neutral, many suggestions were made to make the process gender appropriate. Thus, it was enigmatically suggested that wall maps are better than atlases in the girls' school, which is perhaps more free than disciplined. I have not been able to unpack the interest in the, uh, I mean, the, the meaning of that uh, particular distinction. The reorientation of perception was quite uneven, as Rice found out, that in Shimoga, for instance, all agreed that the sun moved around the earth, and the training master himself seemed surprised at my deferring from that opinion. Despite the globe, the map, and the atlas, Rice lamented that geography was not taught in an intelligent manner. There was too much dependence on the book. Now, the interesting thing about Bhuvivarni, which I showed you an image of right here, is that it is all text. In fact, there's not a single illustration. And so maybe he was right when he says you need these aids. And of course, many of the schools did not necessarily have them. And the resistance to geography as a subject also came from parents who saw no virtue in training their children in subjects that did not lead to a job. Yet despite the long and detailed record of disinterest in and even resistance to the cultivation of cartographic knowledge, the encounter with cartographic objects such as the globe, the atlas, the map, considerably broadened children's imaginations. And you get these clues, you get these small kinds of clues in the in the reports, leading to a certain kind of enchantment even with regions and products that were unfamiliar. So now I'm going to shift to the last point that I want to make in this paper about the emerging role of experts in the classroom as it was imagined that they would correct the too literary tendency of learning. So in this very important book that he wrote on vocational education in 1933, this writer from Mysore called Kinney said that the training of students, especially boys in some skills, to draw them away from a too literary education was a constant, even obsessive concern of the Mysore government. There were equally persistent discussions of the failure to transform attitudes to manual work. Mysore had an engineering school since 1862, to train educated subordinates for the PWD. But disappointing results with even the scholarships failing to overcome the repugnance to the active life of an engineer led eventually to its abolition in 1883. In the years leading up to 1900, various subjects were taught in the industrial schools, such as masonry, wood carving, drawing, modeling, carpentry, weaving, rattan work, etc. But they attracted only a small proportion of students. Upper caste or non-artisan classes shed their aversion to manual education by 1915 only because of the prospect of a ready job in government. I can talk perhaps more about the caste question as it transfigured this engineering education in the questions and answers. The government efforts were dogged by at least two irreconcilable contradictions, revealing the centrality of caste and gender as capital in defining access to education. What accounted for the indifference to and poor performance of both upper and lower castes in full-time technical education? 
was education intended to provide enhanced life skills to castes already marked or ranked as laboring castes or were the requirements of the modern economy demanding the entry of other than upper castes and skills other than mere manual ones would a generalized manual education in short be more productive than occasional training and the person who actually so let me just briefly say that of course women are forming only a very small proportion of schoolgoers even at the primary stage this is an unusual example of school that is actually training women in a science deploying certain kinds of teaching aids as well as encouraging observation measurement and skills but the person who embodied as it were the zeal of the mysore government in wanting to introduce a form of generalized manual instruction was Hermes G. Baba. And he said that one has to go beyond inherited caste callings and introduce this kind of manual education across the board in the school curriculum. In 98, that is 1898-1899, Baba called for the use of blackboards and maps, object lessons, drill and singing, being freely interspersed between lessons of reading and writing. And in 1904, again, he was asked to draft a proposal for the introduction of practical agriculture and handicraft classes to high school and college students in Mysore states. But he was clearly inspired by those who wanted to sort of break the deep-rooted aversion to manual work by including it as a component of general education. And he was actually sent by the Mysore government to explore the kinds of systems by which this might be achieved. And especially he was very particular about emphasizing that manual training should not be confined to the specialized technical schools, nor to those classes whose inheritance was in practical skills. The only way for Mysore to develop a class of artisans or workers mentally equipped for industrial work was to start them young. So he was echoing in some ways the missionary hope. And we all know about Basel Mission, though I've not mentioned Basel Mission in my talk so far. The training of the eye and hand cultivates intelligence and improves character. Bahaba began a long and protracted engagement with the government of Mysore to further his ideas about manual education for all. In 1907, he got the government to agree to introduce a Sloyd experiment by bringing Dr. G. Larson, who was the principal of Quincy Shaw's Sloyd Training School in Boston, to be employed in Bangalore. Mahabha was thus convert that no, but what Baba was doing with Sloyd, which might be not familiar to many of you, was to invert the purpose of the Sloyd movement, which arose in Sweden in the 1870s, in order to prevent skills from being superseded by machines, to serve in Mysore as the seedbed of an industrial mentality. And he had the full support of the Mysore government. So he was able to actually bring people to Mysore to actually train other teachers, set up these schools, about 20 of them. I have, unfortunately, only one very blurred image here. And he was very convinced that the boys and girls of India have as great an aptitude for manual work if they're trained in it at the right age as the children of any other country. And he was convinced of this. But and for him, Sloyd would produce this love of work, this habit of tidiness and aesthetic sense, forms of attention, training of the eye and the capacity to think among children. But importantly, as Baba pointed out, 
it does not teach a trade now he was very very particular about this it should not treat a trade it should be aimed at dismantling this enormous barrier that had developed between mental and manual and you can see here from the image of the sloyd classroom that it is actually instrumentation heavy it was therefore very expensive to run and it's of course dominated entirely by boys but he managed to set up some 20 sloyd schools in various parts of mysore and introduced the kindergarten skills in lower classes where cardboard works paper folding etc also part of sloyd incidentally so an expert was brought from the us for this as well and 260 teachers of different grades of schools were trained in sloyd systems now the very ironic thing about this is that the whole experiment was shut down in 1920 and then you do not hear a single word even in the reports that follow so there is a return as it were to this whole discussion about how do we train people for vocations who are the people who should be trained for vocations and the whole the, the, the obsession which mukaba had with breaking the barrier between mental and manual simply vanished from this discussion so i've come now to the end of what i wanted to say i began this paper with educational schemes that met with astonishing success namely the inclusion of needlework for girls physical education for all and i've concluded with an apparent failure the impossibility of manual education in general schools in mysore i have tried to ask a different set of questions related to what the physical material aspects of schooling were both in terms of what was intended and to a smaller extent what was achieved i conclude my discussion in the 1930s because by this time schooling had indeed not only become an urgent necessity for anybody attempting to redefine themselves in the social hierarchy but it was increasingly being claimed as a right especially by members of the dominant caste lingayats on the one hand and the much lower ranked halepaikas panchmas in the mysore region so the content of education became less important than the politics of presence in the school for which the state itself appeared to be willing to lend a hand so the mysore case in my view allows us to flesh out the local details of what was clearly an international success such as the introduction of needlework the introduction of physical training and the impossibility of reorienting of syllabus for boys that despite the state's obsessive efforts already closely focused on the more literary skills better suited to the upper caste schoolboy and government work but the occasional flashes within this archive of failure have allowed us to plot a different experience of childhood in which the colonial classroom emerged as a rich and complex sensorium only gradually correlated more strictly with age i have to give you a small ps here because we are in the throes of a big debate about what should be taught in schools and as part of that there has been a return to the history of education i'm going to leave without comment a position a small abstract from a position paper produced in karnataka which is the current state of mysore which says this for a very long time in india till the arrival of the british the school education was never centrally controlled schools used to be conducted in devalaya premises that is temples or in the courtyards the tinai 
of influential people and subjects such as arithmetic and language which had immediate practical value to everyone was taught to all i'm emphasizing that dharmpal has found out from british records itself that no discrimination based on caste was made and also the number of schools in a small village in india easily outnumbered the total number of schools in all of the united kingdom i'm not saying more <laughs> Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.